The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may email us at wfmp.louisville at gmail.com. You need to know democracy. Make it grow. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. Don't let it go. Democracy. We are your election connection. We are your election connection. We are your election Welcome, everybody, to Election Connection. I'm your host, Ruth Newman. And if you happen to be someone who's passionate about social and environmental justice and might have at one time or another wondered about or even contemplated running for public office, then you will want to hear what our guest today, Doug Lowry, has to say. Now, Doug is a longtime local activist who has worked as a change agent and a board member on a lot of civic projects from neighborhoods to LGBTQ fairness and racism to healthcare to urban farming and much more. And he's passionate about connecting values to action. And because of that, he ran for school board in 2003. Doug has a Bachelor's of Art in Philosophy and Psychology, and he also pursued a Master in Divinity at Southern Seminary. So welcome, Doug. Thanks, Ruth. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me talk about something I'm really passionate about. So what prompted you to decide to run for school board in the first place? So I ran for school board back in 2003 because I was a parent. And not only was I a parent, but I was a parent of a child who learns differently. My child had attention deficit disorder, but is also sort of a genius. So we call those kids twice gifted. So he not only learned differently, but read in fourth grade at a college level. So he was a smart kid who was easily distracted. And what I found is that Public education is great. We were super involved. Both of his parents were super involved. So I was the PTA president at the elementary school, was very involved in after-school child care, and ended up uh, getting on the YMCA board. And what I found is that a lot of teachers and a lot of parents were very concerned about the education that their children were getting. So I ran for the school board basically to stick up for the kids that I realized were not getting what they needed. What I first found out is that if you have a child who learns differently, smart or not, there are all these barriers to your child's education. And the system is not set up for parents really to get a voice. Back at that time, Steve Imhoff was the school board representative for that school. And as far as I know, I don't think anyone has ever done this. A group of his parents went to him and said, hey, what would you think about having a group of parents to create an advisory board for your school board district because basically a school board representative is essentially a glorified volunteer there's no pay it's a lot of work so it's a super important job but it's a job that requires extraordinary amount of time and energy you have to learn a lot you have to know a lot you have to go to a lot of meetings 
And so I first really got a taste of what school boards were like by being on this advisory committee for Steve Imhoff. And because of some of the other work I'd done, with, especially with kids who learn differently, uh, JCTA basically said that they would be interested in having me run as a candidate. So I was passionate about my own child, but I ran into a lot of parents and a lot of students who really weren't getting what they needed. And it felt like that uh, the system needed somebody who had those racial justice sensitivities, those sensitivities to children who learn differently. And then I'm a healthcare administrator. So one of the things that I strongly believe in, in education and in healthcare both, the workers are the product. So if you have a, a teacher, whether it's a certified teacher or non-certified staff, the people who do the work are the product. So it's very important. What I learned is that a lot of times the issues in education were directly connected to quality of work life. So the more I talked to employees, most of whom were either JCTA members or members of another union, I really learned about how important it was for unions to take ownership of the quality of work life in order to give a good product. So most of the teachers, it wasn't really the quality of work life, although that was important, it was how the quality of work life impacted their ability to educate students. So I learned a lot about the relationship between the public school system, which I think is still the largest entity in the state, Jefferson County Public Schools is a billion dollar a year budget. So it felt like to me that parents needed to be more involved in overseeing how that billion dollars got us the impact that we were looking for. Is that advisory committee still active? No, there's, I don't think there's any school board candidate who has an advisory committee. And that was back in the day when very few people wanted to run for the school board and school board candidate races were not very expensive. Now school board races are much, much more expensive. So that's a nonpartisan race, but many of the candidates who run are partisan or semi-partisan candidates. Yeah, but so then that's not obvious though on the ballot when people vote. No, no. it's not obvious on the ballot, but as American politics have become more polarized, that effect from the national level has seeped all the way down to the lowest levels of elected officials. So when people think about government, the two things that are in all neighborhoods that are their government institutions are schools and post offices and libraries. So when the political conversation gets to schools, which is what where most people become a political activist, they worry about their kid, they worry about the kids who are wandering through their neighborhood on the way to and from school, uh, and they're worried about these other government outfits. Well, I learned living in the Beachmont neighborhood, I ran against Dottie Pretty in 2003. And what I found out in just going and talking to neighborhoods, I was very involved in the neighborhoods movement. And what I heard from our neighborhoods, the neighborhoods of South Louisville Association, Beachmont, Oakdale, and some other South End neighborhoods, is that people were very concerned about what happened to kids, not only during the school day, but on their way to school and on the way home from school. So there were lots of students that were unsupervised, did not have a lot of focused adult attention, and most of the neighborhood associations felt like that schools should do a better job in integrating what happens outside of school. And that paralleled what I learned at the Southeast YMCA. I was on their board and then did some work with their full board as well on how to make sure that out of school time was 
considered in how the schools do their programming. What I learned in looking at racial equity is that in my son's reside school, which was Rutherford Elementary, Vietnamese kids and other kids who were English as second language kids were counted as white for racial equity. And what that did for schools like Hazelwood Elementary, Simple Elementary, Rutherford Elementary and others is that all of those schools looked as though they had racial equity, but at the same time, you had pockets of schools that were clusters of overwhelming need, but not overwhelming resources to address those needs. Uh -huh. So looking at what neighborhoods wanted, neighborhoods want schools that they're proud of where kids can be successful. And a lot of the schools in the South End and in that district were not successful, depending on how you measure success, not because kids aren't smart and parents don't care, but because the number of kids with overwhelming personal circumstances were all clustered together. So there were a lot of issues that came from the neighborhoods, really, that led me to run for the school board and sort of bring what neighborhoods care about into the school board conversation. Uh -huh. And did you win or lose that election? I lost that election. And what uh -huh. I found out is that just because the biggest and best labor unions in the county are endorsing you doesn't mean there aren't other unions that don't. So Dottie Pretty, her husband, was a member of a different labor organization, the Teamsters, and they all went out and, and voted and supported Dottie Pretty. Even though I think by all regards, Miss Pretty missed most of her board meetings. She was in extraordinarily poor health and she just insisted on running. So give me a little bit of a description of how you went about running for office. So the first thing is you have to file for office. You have to fill out a form at the county clerk's office. And basically you're affirming that you live somewhere. In most races, you have to have a certain number of people sign that they're going to endorse you so that you're not just one person with no voters. Are they and, people in your district? Yeah, in you have to have people in your district. And then just the mechanics of it, you need a campaign manager. You need someone or a group of people who are going to help you manage your campaign. But you also have to have a campaign treasurer. There are very specific guidelines about the money you can accept, how much people can donate to your account as a campaign, and what happens to that money. Who made the donation? Where did it come from? How were those expenditures from the campaign made? Because that's an effort to make that election transparent. So the mechanics of running for office are making sure the paperwork is filed, that you as a candidate are actually eligible to serve in your district. You can Google people who got kicked off ballots in court cases. There are people who didn't meet residency requirements. There are people who live in more than one place. And so if you're planning on running for office, make sure that you meet the eligibility criteria. But the, the big learning curve for me was how much work it is just to manage the campaign finances. And even though other people might endorse you and support you, you actually can't coordinate your campaign with those people. They do their thing. So, for example, JCTA endorsed me. JCTA is the Jefferson County Teachers Association. There were several other unions that endorsed me. They did their own thing, and we were not connected in any way. So it was always funny sometimes to hear people at work tease me about a commercial, 
that I had no input in. So people would kind of tease me about being this great guy who's involved in all these not-for-profit organizations and this and this work because of what the other uh, organizations that endorsed me did. And I just didn't realize, I didn't understand the dynamics of going door to door. So that was another big thing. The, the biggest part of campaigns, you know, 50 years ago, there was a lot more one-on-one -on -one campaigning and door knocking. There were precinct captains, there were people who went out and, and helped you get elected. But a lot of that eroded. So a lot of it was going out, finding groups that would let me talk, finding groups that were cared about education and wanted someone who was actually a parent to be a representative. And I'm just curious to know these forms that you had to fill out, who did you submit them to? And are those forms open to public scrutiny? The forms are available at the Secretary of State's office. If it's a statewide office, the county clerk's office has forms depending on what race you're filing. And, and are those forms open to the public? Forms are open to the public. You have to fill out the forms once they're complete or available for public scrutiny. And most yeah. of the time, depending on what race you're in, your opponent is very carefully scrutinizing your application to find out if they can get you disqualified. So the uh -huh. main thing is if you're running for office, you want to make sure you don't get disqualified on a technicality. And the other thing I think honestly is to, to be an honest, open and transparent person. A lot of candidate viability has to do with not only how visible and how well you're known, but also how easy it to find out information about someone that's not so great. I was really astonished when I went to go to an endorsement interview for the Courier Journal, the kinds of questions they asked and how they evaluated my viability as a candidate. David Hawk was the editor and basically I wrote tons of letters to the editor and he essentially decided I was just a gadfly, that I was not somebody who had any meat or any ability to implement public policy that I just wanted to criticize. And I don't think that was true and I don't think that was fair to me, but that's basically in two or three comments, he said things about me. And I think as a candidate, when you're running for office, one of the things you don't realize and that you don't think about is how what other people say about you who don't even know you very well say about you. So media, especially now, back then media was important. People would take the Courier Journal's endorsement list to the ballot box with them so that they would say well, whoever the Courier Journal endorsed, that's who they would be voting for because that was their primary source of information about mm -hmm. candidates. So as a candidate, you may not understand how other people are evaluating you and what the factors are at play in their determination of your viability or how they assess your answer to specific questions. So in the media, you're gonna find TV stations now, certain groups that are out there that evaluate candidates, TV stations, newspapers, depending on what office you're running for, asking you questions and being able to answer those questions and being able to understand the nuances of those questions and having a good answer is really important for a candidate. Mm -hmm. Being able to hone your elevator speech to say what you're for, not necessarily what you're against, although sometimes that's important too, but being able to answer to wide groups of people 
who may be very different from you and look at life very differently than you do and being able to answer those questions. Yeah, in a way that stays true to your core values and and to what you believe in. Did you experience a lot of negativity, negative campaigning against you? I had several people who I realized did not like me and I didn't know that. So it was interesting to me to find people in neighborhood work who for one reason or another decided that they didn't like me. They knew of my work in other areas. I am a social justice person, very interested in racial equity, very interested in LGBTQ equality, very interested in making sure that people who don't have enough get a fair shake. I was very involved in some neighborhood work and it was just interesting to me that there were people who really had not had a direct conversation with me, but as I found out later, had made comments about me or said things about me to other people. Huh. So this was more on an individual level and not on uh, an organizational level, such as union negative. Correct. Okay. So what do you think you could kind of summarize as what you learned from this experience? What I learned from this experience is that people who run for office need to know a lot more on the front end. There are all kinds of candidate training schools now that were really not around when I was running, but the Democratic Party had some, Virginia Woodward was really working on getting more women elected, so there was a lot of training for getting women candidates to run. And of course, now there's Emerge Kentucky, which tries to get women to vote and to be elected, and it's a Democratic Party connected sort of thing. It's not Republican or nonpartisan. And there are other groups out there that are trying to get younger people to run. So there are national groups out there that want to improve the candidate pool and improve the number of people who are running so that you can get more candidates ultimately elected to office. And I think a lot of that's paid off. Uh, the Fairness Campaign endorsed Karen Berg in a state Senate election and she was elected, but she was a graduate of Emerge Kentucky. So a lot of candidates can trace their viability and their electability back to groups that worked with them, did some training with them on messaging, on how to run a campaign, and really worked on helping them be prepared to be a candidate because it takes a lot to be a candidate. And then there are all these strategies that you need to be able to implement in order to get elected. Are, are these groups predominantly partisan groups or are there nonpartisan groups that help people to become candidates? There are mostly partisan groups. There are special interest groups that look for candidates. So one of the strategies in being a candidate is not to win, but to run for office so that you can message your point of view. So, for example, I helped start this organization called the Green Convene. And back in the 2000s, there was really no public policy group on environmental sustainability in Louisville at all. So some of us from Metro United Way and some other groups started what's called the Sustainability Forum. And out of the Sustainability Forum, we found a group of people who were interested in implementing policy action groups. So out of that conversation, the Green Convene was formed. So that was our first public policy around sustainability meeting. We called it the Green Convene. We had a lot of interesting people 
connected to that work. One of the other pieces that came out of the sustainability forum, if you remember Jackie Green running for mayor. I do indeed. <laughs> and we've had him on our show many times. Blame Doug Lowry for that. Doug Lowry and Jackie Green met very, very early in some mornings at Tim Dar's house and talked about how we could enhance the conversation about sustainability. And I said, what we need is someone to run for office who can elevate sustainability as a conversation. So one of the ways to implement public policy and raise conversation is not to run as a candidate to win, but to run as a candidate to raise consciousness about a specific issue. Louisville is a healthcare town, so it would be awesome if we had some candidates who simply ran on universal health care so that they can tell people what universal health care is, how it benefits specific constituents in a city or county or in the state at large in Kentucky. It raises the consciousness because when you have a debate or you have a forum or you have a media campaign or social media campaign, media shows up and hopefully ask you questions. You can also do some pretty astonishing things if you are an issue candidate, not a general candidate, in that you can do some stunty type things that you wouldn't do if you plan to get elected. So there are ways that you can draw attention and create spectacle and public drama in ways that you wouldn't do if you weren't trying to just raise consciousness. Just to remind everyone, you are listening to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM All Volunteer Community Radio, coming to you from downtown Louisville. And I am your host, Ruth Newman, here today with Doug Lowry, who, having run himself for office, has many tips and lessons learned for, for anyone out there contemplating being a candidate, especially in a local or state election. So let's go on with the conversation. So let's talk about outsiders and insiders. And first of all, let me ask you how you define what is an outsider. Is it an outsider to the political party or is it an outsider to the main thrust of that political party. Like, for example, you have described both Charles Booker and Bernie Sanders as outsiders who ran for office, but they were both inside of the Democratic Party. So what is your definition, first of all, of an outsider? Well, first of all, Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. He's a Democratic Socialist. And he's an interesting case study If you go back and look at what the Democratic Party, the national DNC, offered Bernie Sanders to keep Ralph Nader from running. So if you just Google Bernie Sanders and Ralph Nader, what you find out is that Bernie is an independent, as a non-Democrat, but from a particular state, was actually able to leverage a lot of resources from the DNC to help him stay elected and to help implement policies that he cared about. And he is an outsider. He is not a Democrat. He's a Democratic Socialist who was running for the Democratic nomination. And the interesting parallel on the presidential side, of course, is that Donald Trump is not really a Republican either. He's been a Democrat. He's been a Republican. But would I say that he's a champion of what we think of as Republican values? Probably not. And we've seen a lot of that in national politics with the rise of the Tea Party, 
a lot of different types of candidates who were not traditional Republicans ended up showing up as Republican Party nominees. And the same thing on the Democratic side. There are typical candidates that the Democratic National Committee or the Kentucky Democratic Party are picking. So mm -hmm. let me just explain where my point of view on insiders and outsiders comes from. I sit on the Fairness Political Action Committee, which I think is the greatest political action committee out there. It's a wonderful model. We actually interview every candidate that we can. Occasionally we don't interview candidates, but most candidates who submit an application to be endorsed by Fairness Campaign, we are a nonpartisan pack. So we interview Republicans who want our endorsement. We interview independents who want our endorsement. We interview Democrats who want our endorsement. And we have volunteers that very carefully listen to candidates. We meet with them either in person or virtually and ask them all these questions. They fill out a questionnaire. We ask them questions about that. And then depending on the race, we have additional questions. And there's some transparency and some thoroughness in that process that's very different than how other people endorse candidates. So many times a national party or a state party actually have a candidate they're going to endorse. And there's a process they go through, but it's not a transparent process. So Amy McGrath is a good example of that. Amy McGrath could have and should have won her former race in the congressional race. She lost what I think many of us would arguably agree was a winnable race. So she wasn't a terrific candidate. Jack Conway lost his race. And a lot of the reasons I think he lost is that he could have and should have been a better representative of the entire Democratic Party. And I think that he and some other candidates have sort of bought the Kool-Aid that in a state like Kentucky, you have to be middle right or right of right. So insiders get chosen by groups of people who have a vested interest in the party structure. And there's a good reason for that. People have put lots of time, energy, and money to build parties. There's a party system, there's good and bad, but it's painful when a party like the Democratic Party has to consider endorsing a candidate who's really not a Democrat per se. And I think the same pain shows up for the Republican Party. The Republican Party is probably not that excited about having Donald Trump as their nominee, not just because uh, of some of the things that maybe some of us don't care for about you know, his politics, his behavior, his tactics, but he's at heart not really a true Republican. He's an opportunist Republican. So he showed up looking for a nomination. And I think many of us don't want to see nominations handed off to people who have great resources. And you know, when we were looking for nominees for the president, you know, Bloomberg threw his hat in, other wealthy uh, Democrats threw their hat in and talked about running and whatnot. So that's what I mean by insiders and outsiders. So outsiders are people who show up with an authentic process and an authentic intention, but they're antibodies within the party that push back against them and really don't want them to get elected. Google Debbie Wasserman Schultz and you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. According to Wikipedia, Deborah Wasserman Schultz was elected chair of the Democratic National Committee in May of 2011, but then on July 28th of 2016, she resigned from her position after WikiLeaks released a collection of stolen emails 
indicating that Wasserman Schultz and other members of the DNC staff had exercised bias against Bernie Sanders and in favor of Hillary Clinton in the 2016 Democratic primaries. So there's some internal dynamics and some internal ways that parties try to maintain their sense of stasis and their sense of stability, which is totally understandable from the DNC standpoint or the KDC standpoint. When it comes to someone like Charles Booker, Charles Booker is an outsider. If you look at who the Democratic Party nationally has endorsed and you look at who the KDP has endorsed. KDT being the Kentucky Democratic Committee. They're not typically looking for black candidates. And so I would consider Charles Booker an outsider, partly because he lives in Louisville and partly because he's not white. So finding candidates who look more like the left wing of the party and not so much like the hard right, sometimes it's hard to tell when we look at Democratic candidates if they're a Republican or a Democrat, because if you're not for universal health care, how can you go out and tell people that you're a Democrat? If you're not for Medicare for all, which to me sounds like you know an access issue that Democrats should wholeheartedly support, that to me does not sound like something a Democrat would say. That sounds like something a Republican would say. So that's an example. What's exciting about Charles Booker is that it shows that in times of great energy around racial justice or other social justice issues, and this is just an example, how one candidate can surge and where people can say, because I think he almost won. And he was very, very close. There were a lot of spoiled ballots. That's a whole nother issue. You know, 8,500 spoiled ballots in Jefferson County alone. And the difference between her and him was only 10,000 votes. So it just shows that when people feel great energy around a justice issue or passion, that can actually result in candidate viability. So we, we have not seen the last of Charles Booker. And I hope that the Democratic Party will be more honest in looking at how they consider a candidate as a viable and as electable. I know that at a national level, money plays a big role in who gets selected as a candidate. But is that also true, for example, for you when you ran for board? At the local level, is money really a major part of who gets to run and who gets to win? I would say yes. I would say all political strategists and all pundits, the first thing they look at when evaluating a candidate's viability, not necessarily their electability, but their viability, they're going to bottom line say, who's got more money and how much more money? So a lot of the people who were looking at Booker, who believed in Booker and would wanted to vote for Booker because they felt like he was more electable, actually voted for Amy McGrath because she appeared more viable. The National Democratic Committee and lots of outside interests donated to that campaign and Amy McGrath had a large war chest, which was needed to defeat Mitch McConnell. So whoever was going to be nominated needed to have a lot of money because, of course, Mitch McConnell has a lot of money in his war chest and is an experienced campaigner. The problem with that, of course, is that local people really didn't pick Amy McGrath. Somebody else picked Amy McGrath. And that's one of those frustrations with how money changes the dynamics. But as we saw with Charles Booker, money isn't everything. So many, many times you look at a candidate and think, well, gosh, they're the, this is the most viable candidate. But either they're so boring, people don't vote for them, 
Or number two, someone is so impassioned by another candidate that that money matters less. Money always matters. You have to be able to mail things to people. People don't answer their phone anymore. So you have to spend money on TV ads. You have to get social media in many different ways out to people. And I think for most elections, being able to run some type of TV or cable ad, especially for larger offices, is really important. Yeah, and during this pandemic, candidates no longer can go door to door. A lot of candidates ended up going door to door and making the decision, I'm going to get out there and tell people who I am and and left literature. So printing the literature, uh, especially if you want to make sure that your work is from a union shop, not just from some other place, because you endorse unions and you support unions and you want union support. So having that printed material, buying the time it takes to be on media and then making sure that there are actual canvassers. So, you know, the larger and wider the office is, the more you need those paid canvassers and the expertise to target voters. What most people don't realize is it doesn't matter as much what you stand for and what your values are as how those values get communicated to people who actually vote. There are plenty of people who may like you, but if they don't vote for you, it doesn't matter. So for candidates, the big issue for us as a country is how do we convert people who are interested in a particular policy issue into actual voters? So if you're a new person running for office, there are a huge swath of people who don't vote. So being able to excite and energize, especially younger people, millennials, into voting is a great strategy for a new person. If you're a newer person, you're a new candidate, Bringing your own voters with you is a huge opportunity to make an impact in future elections. Yeah, and actually that is one of my pet peeves in past years when I would go canvassing door to door for candidates. My instructions from the local party headquarters would always be only go to those people that have a record and they would give you a list of those people to go to that they were registered in your party and that they had voted in the last election. And those were the people that you targeted, which left out a huge swath of people. It left out anybody who was new, anybody who hadn't voted, anybody who wasn't in your party. And those people too need to be informed, you know, an informed electorate and they were being ignored by both parties. And that really rubbed me the wrong way. I could only go to the homes of people who were in my party and who had voted in the last election, which I was extremely upset about. (laughs) In primaries, that's pretty typical. So in a primary, of course, people are either registered as a Democrat or a Republican. So in a primary, you are going door to door. You are knocking on the houses. I've done this for my union. I'm a CWA union member. And, and what is CWA? Communication Workers of America. So okay. I work for AT&T. And what's important about knocking on doors and canvassing is you do get a sense very quickly of what people really think. So there are things unions are supposed to think. You know, we're labor unions. Most of us endorse Democrats. And there's a long history of that. It's interesting when I went out knocking on doors and doing phone calls in the 2016 election, and in the Matt Bevan election, how many people would have voted for Matt Bevan's opponent 
if that opponent was a right to life person. So it's very interesting to me. Many, many voters have a pivot point. They have one issue that's going to make them decide yes or no. Whereas other voters look at a multitude of issues and try and find the best person. So there's a mix out there. If you're a candidate, you really do have to decide. Am I a one or two issue vote getter or am I a policy vote getter? A lot of people focus on policy and policy is important, but honestly, most people vote based on whether they like the person or not. So not only do you need to have good policy and a good strategy to win, but you also have to be a likable person. And there's a lot to go factor into that likability. We uh, hear a lot of conversation about electability, and that is always kind of a voodoo word that I think hurts Hispanic, Black, and women candidates. If you're a white male candidate, that word electability a lot of times is code for, well, what we really need is a man. That's not always true, and there are certainly more women, there are more Hispanics in office than there have been. There are Native American candidates in the House of Representatives now who got elected. You know, we, we've hardly ever had any Native candidates in the Congress, that we, but we do now. But when push comes to shove and people ask if Kamala Harris is electable, she's Black and she's a woman. And a lot of people are really saying not who do I support and who do I want and what are my values, but who will other people vote for? And that's the, the bugaboo of electability. Electability is a problem as a phrase. What's a better word to use is viability. Most of us need to be having the conversation about viability. We talked about cash. The money to run and operate a campaign is a critical part of viability. Having an, a good messaging, knowing who you're going after, who in that list of people who actually show up and vote are hearing your message and responding to your message. That's viability. Are there people who can deliver on getting people to the polls and delivering on donors? So it's not just having the money, it's connecting with donors in a way that get them to show up for you financially and show up with you in getting their friends and neighbors to vote for you and be involved in your work. Just to remind everyone, you are listening to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM All Volunteer Community Radio, coming to you from downtown Louisville. And I am your host, Ruth Newman, here today with Doug Lowry, who, having run himself for office, has many tips and lessons learned for, for anyone out there contemplating being a candidate, especially in a local or state election. So let's go on with the conversation. This country now is moving more and more towards demographics that are more diverse than white males or white Christian males. And so the onus lies also on the voter not just the candidate, but the person that is, you know, a Mexican-American or a Black American or, you know, a homeless person who is a citizen, those people who are more on the margins to become involved and to become interested in campaigns and elections and to actually vote. So how can all of us work harder 
to make elections more inclusive of all these other demographics? What can we do? So I am a big believer in finding better people to run for office. I don't just want to find someone who is electable. I want to find somebody who is a values person with few, if any, skeletons in their closet, who is committed to social justice and committed to making a difference. So here's an example. Most of us live somewhere we forget in Louisville because we hear so much about the mayor and the Metro Council that there are 22 or so, 26 small cities. And sometimes in primaries, there's not even someone running in these primaries. So think about the city of Rolling Fields. If you live in Eastern Jefferson County, which is right down Brownsboro Road or Whispering Hills or the city of Kingsley. But think about cities like Shively, St. Matthews, and think about what are those offices and how do people run? If you Google small city in Louisville and look at the news, what you'll find a lot of times is that there are problems. The city of Lindview has been in the news a lot in the last 10 years for issues. The city of West Butchel, I believe, has been in the news, some of it for financial misfeasance, some of it for conflict and whatever. So think about not only running for those offices yourself, consider, do you want to be a politician or do you want to be a public servant? So thinking about running for a neighborhood board first and serving on a neighborhood board, the Center for Neighborhoods can connect you to all of the neighborhood organizations in Louisville. And that address is www.centerforneighborhoods.org. And the Homeowners Association so that you can build a connection where you live. But simply look at where you are and look up what the offices are Uh, There's a website called Run for Something, which is basically a partisan, democratic way to try and get young millennials to run for office. But you can go on that and put in your address and it will tell you all the offices that you're eligible to run for. And what we need are more people, young people, older people, Hispanic people, black people, LGBTQ people to run for office, to show up, figure out what you could do. We don't really think a lot about certain offices. If you're committed to racial justice and you're committed to equity, think about running for prosecutor and finding people who can run for prosecutor. That is, if you have been a licensed practicing lawyer for at least four years, along with all the other age and residency qualifications. Prosecutors who hold a great deal of power over black and brown lives and women and children's lives are overwhelmingly white males. And they are not partisan most of the time, but they typically come from the right side of the world, not the left side of the world. Run for sheriff. Less than 2% of sheriffs in the United States are women. They're 98% men. They have high visibility. When you think about Kamala Harris, she's a prosecutor who got elected to Senate. Think about how many people started their career as a prosecutor or a sheriff and then went on to run bigger offices. And a lot of that is this uh, trope about being tough on crime. Candidates feel like they have to show they're tough on crime and that they take crime seriously and that they support the police and they support the military. And being able to field candidates who have a different opinion, especially in sheriffs, jails, prosecutors, and other types of enforcement government is really important. 
school boards. We don't really think about how important school boards are, but finding people who will run for school board, not just in Jefferson County, but in other communities is really important. And there are other jobs that we don't really think about as being interesting things to run for. But there are plenty of boards and commissions that people can serve on. So lots of times there are, there are boards and commissions that you can serve on. And those are not elected positions, they're appointed positions, but they give you a window into what happens in public policy. How do people who are appointed by people who are elected actually do their job? So those are some things to think about in getting more people involved. Could you give the name of that website again for somebody who might be interested in running for office? Sure. It's called runforsomething.net. So if you just Google runforsomething.net, that's a good example. Another, if you are a woman, we need more women running for office because my experience is women make better legislators. They listen better. They're more thorough. They're not going to vote on a bill they haven't read. Totally generalizing here. There are some (laughs) really exciting women in office. Uh, Attica Scott is a good example. She is the same. What I love about Attica Scott, and I knew her well before she ran for anything, before she was a Metro Council person, before she ran for the Kentucky State Legislature. Attica Scott is the same person everywhere. So she's a value-based person. She says the same thing at the YMCA that she does at a bank. She says the same thing at the Yearlings Club that she does at the KDP or some other place. So finding people who are articulate, that are committed and have values and are willing to run for something is really important. And one of the questions I teasingly ask people is what do child actors and politicians have in common? So when you think about the people who are megastars today, a lot of them, like Justin Timberlake, started out on the musketeers. He was a musketeer, I mean, sorry. So here's Justin Timberlake, he's on a show, he's a child actor, and then he became a megastar. So you have to think about, as a politician, if you want to affect public policy at a larger level, where do you start? You start at smaller levels. You start in small city government, you start in some other government role, you serve on boards and committees out in the community, you serve on agencies and commissions where you get appointed by someone who's elected. Yeah, so you don't necessarily have to start out with a lot of money. You can start out by getting involved in various organizations just like you did and then getting their endorsement. Is that right? How do you start out getting known? Well, I think there are other groups. So KFTC, I think, is a good example of a group. And KFTC is? Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. They are a statewide progressive grassroots political organization, among other things, and they are really good at endorsing candidates. They have a set of values that they ascribe to, and they want to see those candidates elected. And so being able to go to a group, know more about them, and go to some of these endorsement meetings. You can participate as a volunteer. Most groups that have a political action committee are looking for people to be a volunteer. So one of the best things you can do in helping this process is to actually evaluate candidates. Sit on the the Fairness Political Action Committee looks for volunteers from the fairness community to evaluate candidates, but other groups are looking for volunteers as well. So 
knowing what it takes to actually run a campaign, elect a person, and to see who's out there makes me feel convinced that we need better people running for office. So I've been connected to two or three different political action groups. And my deep concern is that we are not generating high quality candidates. And if we don't generate high quality candidates at lower level offices, what we get as time marches on are less qualified people that have moved up the food chain to be elected to a, another bigger office. Do you think um, that one of the obstacles to getting good people to run for office is all the negative campaigning and just how, how much it can bend you out of shape to be involved in something like that, to, to be spewed upon with untruths and scandal and all of that? I think if you're running for larger offices, I think that's an issue. But I think if you run for Metro Council, if you run for other jobs that are not national or not a senator, not a congressperson, I think there's less of that. I think that many, many Democrats and many, many Republicans, not all, and there's research. If you go to the PewResearch.org organization, you can see a lot of the research. Most Americans want politicians who will work with each other when, in fact, many politicians refuse to work with each other. People have become more strident in their political strikes. There are people who are registered, who are hard Democrats or hard Republicans, and they're convinced that the other people are the evil ones. There are leaners. There are people who vote a particular way, and they're not going to change their mind either. So when a candidate like Amy McGrath runs a campaign and says, I'm going to try to appeal to people who voted for Trump, it's interesting to see how people take that. Do, mm -hmm. do people who are right of right and middle right really respond to that message as Democrats or do they not? So some of the questions we need to ask ourselves is how do we get candidates who are true to the values? We know from looking at electability and viability, the number one criteria in viability is that people who are voting for a particular candidate, whether it's presidential elections or congressional elections, they want somebody who embodies the values of the party that they most identify with. So having people who pander to values that are outside of that party, I think diminishes the party and diminishes the candidates overall viability over time. And I think we saw some of that at play in this Booker McGrath election. Is there anything else you would like to talk about or recommend to people who are possibly considering running for office? There are groups out there that will help train you to become a candidate. So Emerge Kentucky is one if you're a woman. If you want to know what the planks are, so most parties have a platform and most campaigns have planks and have a platform. There's a group called civics.com, C-I-V-I-Q-S.com. And if you just want to see what the issues are and how people are responding to them and where you fall on that, it certainly helps you craft a message. And it's important for you as a candidate to know what you're for and know what you're against and if there are policies or things that you would implement. So being able to know what your policies might be, because people are going to ask you, you know, they're certainly going to ask you about women's choice, reproductive choice issues. They're certainly going to ask you about economic viability, what's your strategy for 
responding to this COVID-19 economic crash. I mean, there's some common sense things people are going to ask you, and it's incumbent on you as a candidate, even if you're running for something that seems unrelated, to have a stance on those issues and be able to give an elevator speech, a two-minute short response to big questions that people want to know about that sort of tell people where you are, but also don't offend the people that you think are most likely going to vote for you. Just to remind everyone, you are listening to Election Connection on WFMP 106.5 FM All Volunteer Community Radio, coming to you from downtown Louisville. And I am your host, Ruth Newman, here today with Doug Lowry, who, having run himself for office, has many tips and lessons learned for anyone out there contemplating being a candidate, especially in a local or state election. So let's go on with the conversation. And you had also made a, made a comment about you have to be liked. There has to be a level of likability and that people are looking for politicians who will get along, you know, and work together to solve problems. So I'm just wondering if uh, you have any recommendations for even the media ought to be addressing the whole idea of uh, temperament, whether a person has the right temperament to hold office and and to negotiate and to get problems solved in collaboration with other people. Any ideas? I think the media (laughs) plays an incredibly important role in how people talk about politicians and elections. There's a whole cycle of conversation about electability that is primarily driven by media. And it is not driven by facts or asking questions. It's driven by social media type gossip, honestly. Uh, There's a lot of punditry where media presents a lot of pundits who talk about electability without really talking about viability. And they don't ask these character questions. Uh, I'm a faith person. I'm a values person. I think a lot of Americans have strong values. And being able to capture that idea about what values candidate can live up to and try to uphold without saying that the other person is immoral. Republicans describe Democrats as being immoral and Democrats describe Republicans as being immoral. And what we need to talk about is how well people live up to their values. Don't call people immoral, but talk about our values and how people live up to those. Right. The big issue right now is that there's constant campaigning and there's very little separation between campaigning and governance. So basically there's a chronic campaign, which is about money and getting people elected, but not necessarily a focus on governance. So having groups that can assess someone's potential for governance, If you're running for office, being able to talk about not just how do you get elected, which is important, but also the most valuable candidates are those who actually can govern well. So being able to train media and talk to media about how to assess a particular official's performance once they are elected, how good are they at governing? So in our city, there are a lot of people who are asking questions about our mayor and his ability to govern. There were people who were asking about our police chief who was appointed by the mayor and his ability to govern his department and so on. Those same kind of questions at the jail. So if you're a more progressive left of left person, not just saying that someone isn't governing well, but actually being able to point to some rubric or some 
points that say, this is what good governance looks like to me, helps voters know when they're going to the poll how to evaluate a candidate. So lots of these voter guides endorse people, but they're not clear sometimes about the values behind those endorsements. And so mm -hmm. that's, again, one of the reasons I like the fairness campaign. They're very open about what those standards are and why they're asking these questions. It, it helps people be more informed as candidates as to what types of questions they should be able to answer. And it helps voters know that somebody is at least asking these uh, potential governance questions. Some of the races we don't talk a lot about are judges. Uh, uh -huh. We think more about judges now with the Breonna Taylor case asking who signed this warrant. Judges are elected. Judges are the race that nobody pays attention to. Very few people actually know who the judges are, what they're running for, and who they're going to vote for. So being a great voter means that you know who judges are, you know what they're running for, and you know how to assess whether someone will be a good judge or not. And the same thing for sheriffs and prosecutors. Those are the things that that drive daily life for a lot of people who are interested in social justice care about. So paying attention to those races and investing in finding good candidates for those races gets us who care about these issues to a place where we're more effective as voters and as campaigners. Well, thank you, Doug Lowry. And you bring up another issue that I would like to um, pursue on my program sometime in the future about how we find good judges and how people become informed since they are so hamstrung in what they can say that they believe in. <laughs> so thank you, Doug Lowry. I really appreciate your being on my show. It's been very, very enlightening to me and I'm sure to my listeners. Well, thanks for having me, Ruth. I appreciate the opportunity. That was Doug Lowry, a longtime activist for social and environmental justice here in Louisville, laying out his roadmap for running for partisan and nonpartisan office. And we need more people in public office whose motives are not corrupted by money or ego, who genuinely want to search collaboratively for better ways to solve problems and instill confidence in our representatives and our government. If you are curious about running for a public office, you can find out about qualifications and filing to become a candidate by Googling State Board of Elections for Kentucky. You can also go to jeffersoncountyclerk.org, pull down the Voter Information tab, and select candidate filing information. Well, that's it for this edition of Election Connection. Stay tuned for more Grassroots Community Radio brought to you by you and others just like you who support putting the public interest back into our public airwaves. Hope to see you next week on Election Connection.